Welcome to 50 Date Night Screams. I'm Amber Tresca. And I'm Mike Tresca. We're a married couple who decide to celebrate our 50th birthdays by watching some old movies. A lot of old movies. Join us as we watch 50 movies on our date nights and have fun dissecting them. As a bonus, each episode is accompanied by an original character I created and designed for use in your tabletop role-playing games. Many of the movies we watch are unrated, but this podcast is not. 50 Date Night Screams contains mature themes and is intended for adult audiences, so take care when listening. Plus, there are spoilers. Check the show notes to see where you can watch this movie before you listen. We're glad you're here. Have a seat, grab a glass of your favorite beverage, and get ready to scream along with us. Do you mind if I smoke? I don't care if you burn. (laughs) That's a nice, friendly little thought, Mr. Horton. Hey, Mike. Welcome to another episode of 50 Date Night Screams. Thanks. I'm excited to start screaming. (laughs) Well, I don't think there was too much screaming on this movie, but we're going to do the best that we can. Yeah, that was well, we'll get to that. But yes, this is this somebody's definition of screams is broad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So this episode is going to cover the movie that's called The City of Missing Girls. It was directed by Elmer Clifton. It has a four point nine rating out of ten on IMDB. It is unrated. And I'm gonna read a quick summary. All right, you ready for this one? I'm ready. All right, you already saw the movie, so hopefully this won't be a surprise. Sometimes it's a surprise. Sometimes I read the summary, and then I say to myself, is that the movie that I just watched? I don't, I don't even know. Okay. All right, City of Missing Girls. A string of mysterious deaths and disappearances of young women have all been traced to a drama school where all the girls were students. The district attorney suspects the school may be a front for a prostitution ring and sets out to investigate it. After the DA is blackmailed into dropping the investigation, a female reporter decides to go undercover to learn the truth. That's actually pretty good. It's not a bad summary. So this is from 1941. It is black and white, and it is 74 minutes. So the first thing I want to ask you about is the 74 minutes, because It's just, so that's an hour and 14 minutes. It actually seems kind of short for a movie. It was almost like, oh, that was the end. Like, that's how I felt about 74 minutes. Yeah, this, this is because it's early um, in terms of when these movies were made. And I think they were still transitioning out of a few things. One, obviously where they play them. So the idea of a two, three hour movie is foreign at the time. And two, they were probably very different from, uh, they were following a lot of the things that they used to do with the silent movies where you you probably had a shorter runtime. So I think you add all that up and it definitely affects how the movie is portrayed and certainly we're modern viewers. So it's a little bit of a shock. Yeah. And I have not watched a lot of silent movies other than the Charlie Chaplin movies, maybe. And I seem to remember those were kind of short also. Anyway, you know, I'm a big fan of the 90-minute movie. (laughs) I'm always (laughs) like, whenever we go to choose a movie, not one of the 50-night screams, but whenever we go to choose a Saturday night date night movie, um, I'm always looking for that 90-minute mark because to me that's kind of great. You know, we can watch it between the time that the kids go to bed and then we're ready to go to bed and it's not too long. 
Although I do love a nice three hour long movie as well, but maybe just not, maybe just not for this. And then also maybe not a horror movie. I think definitely three hours or even an hour and a half, more than an hour and a half would be too long for a horror movie. But the 74 minutes felt like a blink. It felt like it was like a documentary or a TV show or something. I guess it's a question of how long does the movie overstay its welcome? And some of these plots uh, wrap up quick and some of them don't. I mean, you know, the description you have sounds like it's an entire you could write probably a novel based on what we were what we just described. So it, it does feel like it goes fast. But partially, um, I think they they're all about wrapping things up quickly at the end. Yeah. And it was very linear. So first of all, let's talk about when the first scene came on when the opening scene what did you think what were your first impressions i paid more attention this time because last time you asked me that question i was like i don't remember what the (laughs) first scene was i think i remember first scenes i remember that first impression that first feeling that i get when the movie opens that's a big thing on me sometimes i gotta be honest sometimes i forget some of the details along the way but that first scene usually really sticks with me yeah, that, you're better than me. I, I They usually don't stick. This time it did, though, for me, mostly because it, it seemed like, first of all, if I, there's a few things that were different. One, there was music. So that was new because it didn't last. We didn't it sort of spoiled us. I think there was like a little bit of an intro. And two, it, it seemed like it was, I don't know if you call it sort of stock footage, but it definitely seemed like there was just something that was not part of the film proper. Right. Remember, I was like, is this a photo? Are we looking yeah. at a photo? The camera was like panning across, I think was supposed to be the city. Right. At, like the skyline. And then it sort of, pan- it was actually really, I think, pretty cool for the time that it did pan across the city skyline and then zoom in on a window and then go in to the character who was standing by the window and then he started talking and he he kind of goes into this like monologue i don't even remember he was like a poet like was he reciting a poem or something like that like it was weird yeah and it was the chief of police the captain police captain sort of philosophizing i thought it was funny because some of this movie which i know we will not always get tried really hard to make the tie to the city of missing girls because there a lot of these films i think particularly their posters pitch a thing that is not accurate partially because they're trying to, to get people to think it's a horror film and partially because they're trying to get people to be excited about the drama that's supposed to be in the film. So um, I felt like this movie was willing to sort of philosophize about how cities uh, eat people essentially. So it was interesting because he, he was trying to set that up. It was, I don't know that I was ready for that level of deep philosophy about cities as soon as the movie started, but I, I appreciate the effort. No, because usually a movie opens with an exciting incident, right? It doesn't open with one person standing by a window, just blah, 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 you know? So it was really kind of odd. And then I was like, oh, no, this is going to be sucktastic. (laughs) Like, that was my first impression. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and and it it definitely... Uh, set a tone that actually didn't match the rest of the film, which was probably for the best. I was actually happy about that. Totally, totally. You already mentioned the absence of music, which for me, being such a film music nerd, it was like, uh, it was it was a little torturous to never have any music in the film through the whole movie. There was, there was no stingers. There was no cue. Like, there was nothing. There was... I'm trying to remember when some of the scenes where uh, the women were doing their acts, did they have music in that part? 
they sang and I think they did play some music, but it wasn't, I mean, if it was a snippet, it was quick. So it was really weird to me. Did not like, I don't like watching without music. Like I think I, sometimes I'll be watching a movie and then I will consciously remind myself to pay attention to the music and how the music is interacting with what I'm watching and how it is uh, informing how the director wants you to think about the movie. So the absence of it, I usually notice. Like some movies make really great use of the absence of sound. In science fiction, I think you see a lot of absence of sound just because space and they use it for that effect. So there not being any music at all was something that was really jarring to me through through the through the whole movie. I don't think that I got used to it and sort of forgot about that part of it. Yeah, it I mean this is the transition from silent films. So these are the early talkies and and uh you see it even in the this interstitial. So when we go from one scene to another instead of sort of the old-timey card setting things up with just text for no reason, they would zoom in on a newspaper or a note or something, but it was very much the same. So I, for me, the black and white, those interstitials, all that sort of set up the tone where I didn't have as much expectation for music. But it it is it forces you to focus on only what they say. There's no music telling you what to think. As you and I have a saying, where we're like, "Uh oh, the music says something horrible is about to happen." That you're not going to get that here. Yeah, yeah. So when things happen, it's but of course, you know, much of the plot takes place off screen, which is kind of the way this movie unfolded. It was a little unusual because we were looking at each other and asking, are they are they talking about what we think we're talking they're talking about? Um, So anyway, let's talk for a minute, though, about like the sets and the costuming. I actually thought it was really well set. And the costumes, they were just wearing, like, normal clothing and, and you know, whatnot um, suits. Some of the uh, some of the women that were going to the school for dramatic arts, it was called, or something like that, um, they had some interesting costumes because they were doing dances and they were singing and performing. There was some uh, modeling that was going on as well. So there was some interesting costumes there. But I thought, overall, it was really a pretty robust production. Like I expected something to look more like a play. Like I thought, oh, there'd be like one or two sets and then the director has to figure out how to make it more interesting and make you think it's not just two or three sets. But it it wasn't like that at all. It actually was really interesting visually as well. Although I'll say... I don't know if it's the transfer or the way that it was actually filmed. It's it's not very crisp. It's not very distinct. So I and my uh, uh, older person's uh, <laughs> eyesight was at times was like, like, what am I looking at? What am I seeing? So that was a little bit challenging, although I suppose I could have just put on my glasses. Yeah, I'm happy that there were no characters looks too similar. There tends to be generic white guy, generic handsome white guy. And that's And you know what? I've talked to more than one person about this because I will struggle sometimes with these older movies. All of the men look alike to me because they're of similar height. Uh, They usually have dark hair or, you know, it's black and white. So they all look like they have dark hair, right? 
The hair is similar. If they're wearing hats, they're all wearing suits, very similar cut. I don't know who is who, and I forget who is who. And in this movie, the three main male characters, and there were some other male characters as well, uh, they all did look different. They had different ages and different looks, and then their mannerisms were very different. So I really did appreciate that, that they, that they uh, had clearly thought about that. Yeah, and my favorite aspect of was the the villain, um, King. He had a lighter that was a cigarette holder. So the he had his little cigarette case and he would offer it was very plot specific because that's why we offered bribes as well. But he'd have this case and he would open it up and he would sometimes he'd give you a bribe and sometimes he'd give you a cigarette, and maybe he'd give you both. And then he would use the lighter that was built into it. And it really was a little touch that did a great job of showing how how unique his personality was with that one prop. So I thought they did a really good job of differentiating each character. Hey, man, get up on the door. What's the matter? Who? Who is it? It's Jimmy. Get up. I've got some plumbing for you. Oh. What do you want to come prowling around here for this hour of the night? I think we have a tendency as modern film goers to look at these older movies and think that they're kind of throwaways. Not, not all of them, um, because obviously some of them are classics and, and well-known even today. But the idea that they spent that much time thinking about, you know, like that little touch of the cigarette case, which the villain hands over to the DA at one point. I think it's the DA. And is literally just trying to bribe him. Hey, do you want a cigarette? And then hands him his cigarette case, and then the cigarette case has like a like a obscene <laughs> dollar amount of money, and there's like ten thousand dollars or something like that in 1941. And then the DA, of course, is like, "Well, no, like that's not going to happen. You know, I'm not going to look the other way while all these women are going missing, and I think you have something to do with it, and you're trying to make me, you know, trying to buy me off. Like that's not going to happen. Like that was pretty interesting." Yeah, and he was the assistant DA, which is even more relevant because the DA was in this film and basically joined to be like the angry boss from Dilbert and <laughs> tell him how terrible things were. He was going to lose his job if he didn't figure stuff out. So it was entertaining because um, in a lot of ways, the fact that he wasn't the DA uh, made a, uh, put a lot of tension and pressure on him to try and go after this villain. So I thought it was an interesting – he was in a bad work situation and he was trying to – fight sort of this nefarious cigarette holding bribe offering bad guy right so the deal is is that the bad guy owns this or or operates this drama school supposed drama school which you know i said that we enjoyed the sets and everything but this drama school appeared to be like three rooms but it was like a big room <laughs> where everybody was practicing their different stuff and then also there was like the receptionist that was taking phone calls. And I was like, how is this gal supposed to be taking phone calls while these other girls are singing and this one's uh, getting her photo taken in the back? Like it was wild. And then there was another little room that was a dressing room for the women to change their clothes before their acts. And then there was another room that I think was the villain's office where he did his uh, his his little deals there. And so essentially what we find out through the course of the movie without anyone ever using words like prostitution or human trafficking is that's what's going on. So he gets these gals to come 
they enroll in the school. I don't think anyone ever mentioned a fee now that I'm thinking about it. Is it a school where you go and you pay, essentially? But what he's doing is he's sending them on these out-of-town gigs. So they go to, I don't know, um, didn't they mention like gambling houses or something? So they go to these places where they're the entertainment, I guess. Exactly what happens to them there, we don't fully know, but we get the impression that they are either um, being prostituted or worse or some of them are disappearing. So they're either murdered and a couple of the bodies were found or they go missing because they're being taken to some other place. So the it's really dark, really, really dark. But you kind of have to read between the lines to understand what's going on. And I think, too, this was another situation where I turned to you sort of in the middle of this movie and go, is this human trafficking? Is that what we're watching here? Yeah, it's funny because you mentioned in the beginning, the intro lays it out quite succinctly, and it uses the P word, prostitution, which, of course, you wouldn't use. This is I guess close to the Hayes Code or right after the Hayes Code where you weren't allowed to say such things. So you had to imply them. And it's very interesting to see that they don't address that. I don't think it's necessarily harmed other than it probably biased us because we knew that's what the movie was sort of generally about. So it made it a lot clearer. After a certain point, you're like, I don't – part of the thing that becomes weird is I don't think all of them are dying. So some of them are showing up dead in relation to this. And it's it's like, well, why? Right. And it, it seems to be they are ones who disagree and speak out. And that's how they end up getting killed. Or maybe just resisting. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Can you explain, though, the Hayes Codes? This is not something that I was really familiar with. And in watching this movie, I'm actually even wondering to myself, it seemed like something that would have made a really good novel or even a series of novels because you had this young, handsome assistant DA and you had his, um, I don't I don't know if they were dating or maybe they were going to date. There was, uh, seemed to be a little bit of sexual tension there, but there was the plucky uh, female reporter who uh, went undercover and, and helped expose this whole thing. So why even try to put this to film if you can't use words like prostitution, if you're never going to show one of the murders, you're never going to show one of the bodies, you're never going to really explicitly say, like, why even bother trying to tell this story? It wasn't like it was a true-to-life situation. It was just, you know, clearly, totally fictionalized. So, but tell me about the the Hayes Codes. Yeah, so not 1920s, I think people sort of generally know it was, that's your flappers, that's your sort of roaring 20s and it's very hard to understand or conceptualize how we went from the 20s to the 50s right because in theory we get to the 30s you're starting to see black and white films and then there's this big long gap of decades of black and white films and so a lot of people i think associate black and white films with sort of this very staid father knows best kind of code uh, which was the Hayes code and the Hayes code was named after Hayes um, which was very much this uh, guideline about what was allowed to be in movies because there was an understanding that things had gotten out of hand this happened to comics as well Um, but the 1920s and the 1930s depending on how early you are uh, were really really about the most gruesome um, you know exciting sexually explicit things available that is hard for us to even comprehend because it, we sort of assume the older, further back you go, the, the more staid and, and 
<laughs> potentially boring things become. And the reality was that these stories were taken from pulps. Um, this is the the sort of style where it was lurid. Women were having their clothes torn. Beasts were menacing them. Men were men. Dames were dames. And there was a, sort of a lot of drama that um, sort of choreographed in a very visual way what was happening in the in the film or, or the novel, in the cover of the novel. And I think that's what we're looking at here. If you look at the poster of City of Missing Girls, it's not an accident that at least one of the posters is the women undressed. Um, so there, there's a lot of that understanding that the sex still sells. You just can't show it on screen. So they would, they would play some of the game of trying to see how far and how close you could get uh, without, without getting too much trouble. So the Hayes Code was definitely relatively new at this time. Uh, I don't know the exact specifics of the timing with the film. And it's, it's interesting because different films based on when they debut are going to be very different in, in what the subject matter and how they deal with it. But absolutely, even all of them, no matter Hayes Code or not, they're going to try and show women in less clothes as much as they can to bring that audience in. Right. And so one of the interesting things that happens here, well, two of the ways that they are sort of showing women as sexual objects is the performers and what the performers are wearing. And to us, it doesn't look terribly overt. You know, we probably see um, more on the uh, going to the beach, right? So, um, but I imagine at the time it was a lot. You know, you were seeing all of these women's legs and arms and all of that uh, while they were uh, dancing and performing, uh, which would be like nightclub acts, I guess, is what, what you would think of it as. And, and some of them, I think, were um, sort of like, not acrobatics, but I don't even know what you would call that act, like a, um, like a variety act or a vaudeville type of an act. And then the other time when you see it is when they are trying to blackmail the DA. So this was another thing that it was really very funny uh, because you see the woman who is participating in the blackmail sort of set it all up. So you're watching her set it up and then you can kind of see what's going to happen. So she sets it up so that a photo is taken of her and the assistant DA sort of clinging to one another. And she's wearing something which I think was supposed to look like a peignoir or something like that. So it was kind of like a frilly nighty type of a thing with a robe over it because it's at night he comes over at night on some pretense and then she sets up the rug so that she trips over the rug and and trips and falls right into his arms and and at that exact moment there's a photographer somewhere there who takes the photo of this and then it makes it look like it's a compromising position and it's kind of funny because even though she's wearing this uh, night clothes peignoir, like she's kind of almost fully dressed. Like it's not, it's not scantier or like anything like to our eyes, you know, it doesn't look anything like that. And yet still it's like, oh no, you know, it's like, and it just looked like two people hugging. I mean, it really did look like she was falling into him. Truthfully, if you spent more than a minute looking at the photo, you're like, this is not two people in in a, a passionate either pre or post coital embrace. This is literally like it literally looks like she just totally fell into him, which is what happened. So that part was kind of funny. But they were like trying to blackmail him with with that image, which was kind of hilarious. But it also speaks to how you're kind of using a a, a woman 
and the opposite of that would be the 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 plucky reporter you know who is uh goes undercover and she becomes one of the acts and then she does her act in front of a room full of men who then frankly bid on her you know which is awful and this is the the human trafficking part of it and of course one of the men happens to be her father and that's how the whole thing just like comes down in around itself because he was participating in this situation as well, unfortunately. Um, you know, and then of course the woman who is the one who uh, takes the compromising photo with the assistant DA. Yeah. She ends up dead. Of course she ends up dead. <laughs> so it's just, you know, once again, women are being used in the most ridiculous ways. And on the one hand, you can look at it and say, well, there are a lot of women in this movie and you think, oh, that's good. No, it's not good. It's 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 not good. Just because the women are there doesn't mean that it is doing anything uh, for that gender. You know, they're, be they're being used. They're being exploited. Although I did like to see the plucky reporter because... She was a she was like a very much like a Lois Lane type character that she was going to get in there and she was going to make things happen. And, uh, you know, she was calling in her stories. She was calling her editor and and filing her stories and stuff. And as a writer myself, I you know, I find that very funny. And also that you would have to call in your stories. I mean, oh, like that's terrible. you know. Um, but of course, that's how the whole story unfolds and and how the women in the story even though some of them are talking to one another and they're not talking about the men, they're actually talking about the other missing women. So the women drive the story, but ultimately they are still being used and exploited by all the male characters. So it was just, it was very interesting to me. Yeah. It, it, the other thing that's funny is it's not funny, but it's, it is a little bit of, of sort of a, a plot flaw is essentially there's no reason that they wouldn't really. So the, you have this blackmail, you have this photo and now our plucky, all right, there's a plucky reporter. We also have our, I guess, heroic assistant DA. He's in Iraq in a hard place. He has to, he's being pressured by the DA to prosecute King this this slime ball but he's also if he does prosecute they essentially call him up and say we're going to release this photo to the press why they wouldn't release the photo to the press after he arrests king i don't know why he feels like he's off the hook like every single person that was involved somehow isn't going to try and get revenge on the assistant da i thought that was funny um but i loved nora that's the uh reporter her dialogue was great they also put her in situations where her she, only she could get the story she got a lot of the girls to trust her um she got the grandmother uh i think it was the grandma an older lady to tell her her story which she probably wouldn't have told to a man or a, a police officer so not at all no yeah N nora was the right person to break this and she had a lot of power the assistant da constantly moans about how she can essentially ruin him with the wrong story uh, and it was really interesting because there wasn't a question if the story she reported on didn't happen. Like it, th there was no one challenging her if they were going to tell her the story. Generally speaking, she got a, she got it out there. So she wielded a lot of power, which I thought was really good. I mean, it certainly served the plot, but Nora was just great. Now, unfortunately, Nora, of course, then gets completely sexualized as one of the 
potential. In fact, they comment on it frequently, the male characters that, oh, you could easily be one of the girls in the show. And then she ends up going undercover to do that, which, of course, is absurd because she's been seen by almost every single character. And I think it lasts about 10 minutes. Well, not only that, but she is unable to get the men. The men just kind of stand around and look at each other and go, well, I don't know. I don't know. This is a bad guy. He's trying to bribe me. And I like, he tries to bribe him. And it's like, that goes, that storyline goes nowhere. It, like, he tried to bribe you. Like, that's against the law, right? Like, I don't know. And nothing happens with that. She has to put her actual body on the line in order for this case to be solved, in order for something to happen here. So, like, the men are ineffectual. I mean, they show up at the end, and they're like, rah, 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 you know, and they arrest everybody, and, like, that happens. But, like, that wasn't going to happen until she was there putting herself on the line. And so it was kind of ridiculous that, yeah, she has power, but she's still unable to get them all to do what they're supposed to do and do the right thing. Like, she literally has to go in and do it herself. Like, it's ridiculous. And speaking of men, I think we have to talk about Captain McVeigh. We have to talk about Captain McVeigh because, okay, so he's the first character you see. He's very introspective in this first scene. He's talking about what, I don't even remember what he was saying. Because I was like, oh, man, this movie's going to just drag if this is the whole movie is this dude, like, talking to the window. And then one of his uh, policemen is there, and and that dude is, like, very much like us. That dude's like, what are you talking about right now? <laughs> and he's like, oh, never mind, never mind. Don't worry about it. But he shows up at certain points, and he seems to know exactly what's going on. And he says these you know, wondrous poetic things. And then at another point, he's sleeping. The DA calls him and says, the shit's going down. We got to do something. And he's like, like moaning in his bed. He's like, no, I'm so tired. Just let me sleep. And then the DA shows up at his, I don't know, his room, his apartment, whatever it is, knocks on the door and he's like, oh, and gets out of bed and answers the door. And then he doesn't just like get back into bed. He literally like pole vaults into his bed. It's the weirdest thing. This character was like giving me whiplash in the in the way that he was written. So I really don't even understand what happened with this character. Yeah. He reminds me of Lethal Weapon. Are we are we allowed to swear? Can I say he's too I'm too old for this shit? Is that yeah? You, I mean, I, I already bleep? said shit. <laughs> okay, so it's our show. He, say whatever the fuck we want. <laughs> he doesn't ever say it that way, but he's clearly the the cop who's done right. He constantly both King the villain brings it up. Peterson is like, "Are you going to retire?" And then McVeigh's like, "Not yet. You know, I got one more person to take down." And he sort of gives Peterson the 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 steely eyes, and and then all of a sudden, he turns into like muttering old man, putting on a show to confuse the John Archer so DA. Weird, yeah. Um, it it just felt like there was a difference in direction. I think they were trying to probably put some humor into this because it's a pretty serious film. Really? Oh, yeah, it's very serious. And then at one point, isn't he also, like, eavesdropping? Like, he's using, like, the police intercom system in their office there in order to to listen in on King trying to uh, bribe the assistant DA. So, like, he's not, like, a 
doddering idiot, like who can't get out, you know, and it's just like, that's police work sometimes, right? I'm assuming is that if you're the chief of police, occasionally you get roused from your bed and you have to go and deal with the situation. And he's like moaning that he doesn't want to get out of his bed. It was so wild. He has like Batman like powers. He follows the D the assistant DA around. Like he show a few times he like by himself, no other police. And no, he's, he's like, just standing there. He's outside. Like when that other girl was murdered, when the when the little fake photo was taken, he was outside that lady's apartment. And I don't know how it was supposed to be late at night. It was not supposed to be like that was part of it is that he was there late at night. He was waiting for this woman. The woman goes off. You know, I don't know what she says. I'm going to change it into something more comfortable, whatever she says. And she wanders off and he's standing around there with like his dick in his hand for like a while, like before he's finally like goes looking for her. She's not there. And then he goes downstairs and who's outside but the chief of police. It's just like what? Like, I don't I, I don't understand. I didn't understand that at all. That didn't make any sense to me. He finished a whole cigarette waiting for her to come back. That was a long time. Yeah, I don't I don't know. I was never a smoker. But yeah. All right. So here's the question. Was this a horror movie or was it something else? Uh, it's it's certainly horrible circumstances, but this is not a horror movie. This is a thriller. It's a thriller, yeah. And it was definitely a slow... I don't even know if I would call it a thriller. It was more like a mystery. To me, it was more like a mystery, although it was pretty clear what was going on and who was doing it, like, pretty much the whole time. The only thing that you didn't know was that Nora's father was also involved. That was the thing that was kind of, like, maybe a little bit of a surprise at the end, a little bit unfortunate there. But other than that, you pretty much knew what was going on. It was very linear uh, storytelling from from beginning beginning to end. And there was no like, there was no subplot or, or really anything like that. Yeah, this was really a police procedural, right? So um, it, it's interesting too. Again, this is sort of the change with the Hayes Code, uh, where you essentially see the law hyper competent law folks. Although the assistant DA obviously needed the help of of the plucky reporter. Um, but they definitely sort of get their man, right? So there was definitely sort of a process where they were trying to figure out how to – they were playing a cat and mouse game with King Peterson to try and finally pen him, something on him. It's clear that Captain McVeigh had been doing that for a while and not catching him. So this was finally the moment where they, they, they caught up with him. Presumably, Captain McVeigh can now retire because he got his man. Well, there's a girl I'd like to book in one of my shows. Not a chance. You can't hire her. That's my daughter. She's a newspaper woman. Oh. So let's give this movie some ratings. How many knives? So what was the body count? Was it bloody? Was it gory? How many glasses of wine? How much did we enjoy ourselves while we were watching this movie? And then how many screams? What's the overall rating? So we're going to do this from one to five, one being worst five being best, and we can also do half ratings or decimal points, as we've been doing. So what do you think, Mike? How many knives would you give this movie? Yeah, the decimal ratings are my fault. I was waffling on some no, of I things. No, I think you kind of need decimal ratings. I, 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 think you need, I think you need that tenth of a decimal point for some of these films. Yeah, I'm from a slasher body perspective, um, stuff's happening off screen. Um, but it is happening, so I don't want to say it's nothing, right? So that and it's serious. This is it, once you acknowledge that this is about human trafficking, prostitution, and murders, it's not a small thing, and it's more than one girl, air quotes girl, 
uh, who is is being murdered. So I'm willing to go between one and a half and two knives just because I do feel like it's not a particularly bloody it's not bloody gory at all. But I do feel like there's it's pretty serious subject matter and that and that informs the, the knifing. Well, I think that's a little low. I was actually thinking like like a like a two point five as far as knives went, because I don't know that we ever found out exactly how many women were missing or murdered, but it was certainly enough that in a big city they were concerned. Obviously in a big city, people are gonna go missing, there are people that are gonna be murdered. I don't know how often that happened in the 40s, but in any case, there, it was enough that it attracted attention and that they were trying to do something about it. Fair point. Yeah, and I, I think you're right. I mean, one of the things with the City of Missing Girls, is it a city of missing girls? I mean, it's called City of Missing Girls. So is it a city populated only with missing girls? Is it just the city where missing girls go missing? Uh, I think the title sort of uh, opens that question up, and that's sort of the philosophizing by uh, Captain McVeigh. But yeah, that's fair. Yeah. Like the title, like I get it. It's 1941, but it also bugs me because all I can think of for anyone who has watched The Good Place, where there is a character that is a construct and she just happens to be in the body of a woman and somebody calls her a girl and she's like a robot, right? So there, you know, this this other character says, hey girl, something like that. And this robot character who happens to be female says, not a girl, every time. And I love that because there are at least two meanings to this. And there there may even be more that, that I'm not catching and that people that are smarter than me will, will pick up on. But the first is, is that she's not a girl. She's a robot, right? So not a girl. But also, even if she were a human female, also... Over the age of 18, an adult, not a girl. So when you say city of missing girls, I think literally girls, children. I don't think women. So it's very annoying to me. Uh, Thank you for coming to my rant about calling women women and not calling them girls. All right, let's move on to how many glasses of wine was city of missing girls. I really enjoyed this movie way more. I had very low expectations. I figured this was going to be a one glass, <laughs> to put it in our own language, I thought it was going to be a one glass uh, rating. But I, I actually enjoyed it more than I think so, so thought I would. So I'd give it 3.54. Easy. Yeah, I would say a two and a half. I'm going to say two and a half glasses of wine. It wasn't something that I wanted to get up and leave. I stayed awake for the whole thing, so that is that speaks volumes in and amongst itself. It took its time. Even though it was only 74 minutes, there wasn't a whole lot of story there. Or I should say, there was a lot of story there. They didn't tell a lot of it. A lot of it was off-screen, mentioned in passing. They spent a lot of time on weird scenes that just kind of dragged on for a little bit. There was also a character who was a grandmother of one of the women who was missing or who was murdered. I think she was just missing, not just, but she was missing. And this woman, the grandmother, was clearly perhaps in the early stages of some form of dementia. That was not really followed up on at all. So it was a little, it was a little weird, but but overall, it was it was pretty it was pretty enjoyable. All right, so let's give it an overall rating at this point. We're going to say how many screams. So how many screams would you give this movie? I'd give it a three. I thought um, again, 
exceeded my expectations. Probably not as scary as we were thinking or, you know, scream worthy per se. But uh, I also thought that it was it was very it was fairly entertaining and, and much more my opinion of these movies. If we see a lot of them like this may be changed because this is one of the first ones I've been exposed to. But for the first one, I, I enjoyed it. Yeah, me too. I would say it was a pretty solid three. I didn't know what to make of it. I expected it to be something maybe about a serial killer or something uh, very straightforward, something. And, and again, this is, you know, my modern, you know, thinking. I would never have dreamed that it would have been a story about human trafficking and, and prostitution and, you know, the the seedy underbelly of what was going on in this city and then clearly throughout the state because they were sending these women other places as well. So it was really uh, very unexpected. There was, you know, quite a few moments where I was like, are they are, are, are they talking about human? Are they trafficking these women? Are they sending them off? You know, are, are they bidding on her? Are they literally like I was I was really uh, surprised that this storyline could take place in 1941. So definitely. And it certainly gave us plenty to think about and talk about and relate to things that are going on modern and modern movies. So certainly I definitely give that, I I definitely give it three screams. All right, let's move on to your D&D character that you have developed for City of Missing Girls. So tell me about what you came up with for this. It's kind of a dark story. I imagine this was a little challenging to come up with something that was something that could be played, but that didn't really get too deep into the uh, into the darkness of this story. Yeah, this is my first uh, major challenge. The the other one we did previously was a little more straightforward. This one it was very much, I was not going to do a human trafficking story like that. It doesn't mean we couldn't touch on it, but we wanted to make the villain sort of appropriate for fantasy. So uh, there were a couple elements that I wanted to take. Um, one was I did like the idea of what is essentially a performing arts school that's actually a front um, and is sort of being controlled or masterminded by this villain. So I thought that was a great idea. Uh, and I love of the idea of the Crescent. It's it's really just the name of the school. That is the name of the school. It's called the Crescent School for Performing Arts in the movie. And so we, I carry that over to be like a bardic college, but that's actually a front for courtesans, which of course is sort of a, a different phrasing for um, what was happening in the film, with the difference being the uh, Crescent King is actually uh, a supernatural being. So whereas, and, and that's not necessarily wrong either in the sense that we're bringing the character across from the movie who seem to have almost supernatural powers. And uh, so the Crescent King is, he has a lot of moon themed uh, powers, but his big ability is to send anyone into this city, um, which is called Miss City and Miss City. uh, And you're starting to see the parallels of city of missing girls is one of the ways he can essentially um, dispose of people. If he wants to get rid of them, they, they starve to death, lost in this, this crumbling sort of extra dimensional realm. So I love the idea of this villain who is very much a city character, but has the ability to, if cornered, really do some some harm by sending people away. You know, he's that kind of, he makes you disappear, which again, in the movie, that's what it feels like. Uh, King just sort of, he, you never see what he does most of the time. They just disappear. So it, it sort of, I felt, was still true to the character without being too explicit and making it so disturbing that you wouldn't want to fight him. Right. So give me a flavor of what the stats are like. 
Yeah, so the Crescent King is a bard, so his specialty is obviously charisma, but he's also an assassin. So he's a combination of being sort of very charming, and I felt like the character was. I, I think he was sort of this... He definitely was. You could have seen... You never saw him interact with a, a woman or a female character, really, but you get the impression that he was talking women into coming to his school. So he was, a, you know, good-looking, you know, sort of dashing type. Totally. And so the Crescent King by day is this kind of suave entertainer, um, but not by night he's this kind of disturbing interdimensional entity. He's feeding Miss City. We don't even know what it is, and I don't go into too much to describe it, but he's feeding it um, and using it as essentially his extra-dimensional dumping grounds for people he doesn't like. He's a character that can play during the day. He can be out in the sunlight. He can walk around, and he can also be used uh, as, a, as a foe as the head of a, essentially this sort of front for a villainous organization. Where do you think this character might be used? I don't imagine that it would be in a rural area. I'm thinking it, would, it definitely needs to be somewhere where there's a, a, a lot of traffic, a lot of people, right? Because otherwise he'd be found out right away. 100%. Yeah, he's definitely a character that uh, fits well in urban environments, particularly crowded cities, where the idea of being missing people won't be noticed um, again, this was sort of the McVeigh's ramble, I think, about the cities eating people or whatever he's coming up with. So yeah, absolutely, uh, he has those powers where he can actually make walls and doors disappear within the normal uh, city. So he's a character that essentially can really do a lot to uh, both obscure his activities and confuse people in an urban environment. So he relies on being in some kind of pretty tightly packed uh, highly populated area, and I think he can use that to his advantage. It's it's in his legendary actions, it's in his it's in his um, environmental area effects, and it's also in his regional effects. So he has all that to essentially give him an edge in the environment where we place him. So I I was pretty excited. This is definitely a different character that I think is a is an exciting villain. He sounds more like a high level character versus a lower one. Is that accurate? Definitely, yeah. He's he's um he's definitely somebody that you probably slowly reveal his machinations and then confront him. So there's lots of fighting his thugs probably, and then finally facing him at the higher level. That's right. Right. And where can people find this character and download him? Yeah, so he will be f available for free on patreon.com slash Talion, T-A-L-I-E-N. And uh, I post free stuff there all the time. Um, people are welcome to follow along. And then we will release this as a collection at, once we get all these villains collected. But uh, each villain will be released for free to the public with the stats and all the, the cool stuff about them. All right, sounds good. So you can find the villain on Patreon and you can look for more episodes of 50 date night screams coming soon so that'll do it for the city of missing girls thanks so much mike for doing all the research for this show and for rolling up the character and for being a great date night scream oh thank you i i enjoyed it and uh i i'll watch people going missing with you anytime <laughs> all right thanks bye everybody bye-bye Thanks for listening to 50 Date Night Screams. Be sure to check the show notes to learn where you can watch this movie for free. The quality isn't always the best when streaming, so we've also included a link to where you can purchase it. You can also get much more information, including the characters from this and all the 50 Date Night Screams episodes at betrayon.com slash Italian. Until next time, don't stop screaming.
50 Date Night Screams is a production of Mal and Tal Enterprises. It is written, produced, and directed by Amber and Mike Tresca. 